So join me in giving a warm welcome to a dear friend, George H. Nash. Thank you, John. Very nice. Thank you. Thank you, John, for that very gracious introduction. And good evening, everyone. It's a pleasure and indeed an honor to be in your company on this occasion. I have had many visits over the years to the Hoover Institution for Research, and it is for me a special moment to be able to reciprocate your hospitality. And John, I want to thank you and your colleagues for inviting me to participate in this retreat and for all of the courtesies that have been extended to me. And I see, John, that you have partially implemented a reform that Herbert Hoover once proposed for American life. He proposed that all after-dinner speeches be given before dinner. <laughs> he said that would speed them up. <laughs> well, in the next 35 minutes or so, we will test his hypothesis. <laughs> In 1964, Herbert Hoover died in New York City at the age of 90. He had lived a phenomenally productive life, including more than 50 years in one form or another of public service. It was a record that in sheer scope and duration may be without parallel in American history. His life had begun in humble circumstances in 1874, as a son of a blacksmith in a small Iowa farming community. Orphaned before he was 10, Hoover managed to enter Stanford University when it opened its doors in 1891. Four years later, he graduated with a degree in geology and a determination to become a mining engineer. From then on, Hoover's rise in the world was meteoric. By 1914, at the age of 40, he was an internationally acclaimed and extraordinarily, success, extraordinarily successful mining engineer with business interests on every continent except Antarctica. During World War I, Hoover, residing in London, rose to prominence as the founder and director of the Commission for Relief in Belgium an institution that ultimately provided desperately needed food supplies to more than nine million Belgian and French citizens trapped between the German army of occupation and the British naval blockade. His emergency relief mission in 1914 quickly evolved into a gigantic humanitarian enterprise without precedent in world history. By 1917, he was an international hero, an embodiment of a new force in global politics, American benevolence. When America entered the war and declared war against Imperial Germany in 1917, Hoover returned home and became head of the United States Food Administration, a specially created wartime agency of the federal government. At the conflict's victorious close in 1918, President Woodrow Wilson dispatched him back to Europe to organize food distribution to a continent careening toward disaster. There, for 10 grueling months, he directed American-led efforts 
to combat famine and disease, establish stable post-war economies, and in the process, check the advance of Bolshevik revolution from the East. A little later, between 1921 and 1923, Hoover's American Relief Administration conducted a massive emergency relief operation in the interior of Soviet Russia, where a catastrophic famine, Europe's worst since the Middle Ages, had broken out. At its peak of operations, his organization fed upwards of 10 million Russians a day. All in all, between 1914 and 1923, the American-born engineer-turned-humanitarian directed, financed, or assisted a multitude of international relief endeavors without parallel in the history of mankind. Tens of millions of people owed their lives to his exertions. It was later said of him that he was responsible for saving more lives than any other person in history. During the Roaring Twenties, Hoover, back in the States now, ascended still higher on the ladder of public esteem. As Secretary of Commerce under Presidents Harding and Coolidge, he became one of the three or four most influential men in the U.S. government. In 1928, the Master of Emergencies, as admirers called him, was elected President of the United States in a landslide, and without ever having held an elective public office. Then came the crash of 1929, and the most severe economic trauma this nation has ever experienced. During his tormented presidency, Hoover strained without stint to return his country to prosperity while safeguarding its political moorings. His labors, even now misunderstood, seemed unavailing. His relations with Congress were often tempestuous. On one occasion, he was heard to remark, there ought to be a law allowing the president to hang two men a year and without being required to give any reason. Uh, when in 1930 one of his granddaughters was born, his first response was, I'm glad she doesn't have to be confirmed by the Senate. <laughs> Before his single term as chief executive, Hoover's career trajectory had curved unbrokenly upward. Now it headed pitifully down. Democracy is not a polite employer, he later wrote of his defeat at the polls in 1932. That was putting it gently. On March 4, 1933, he left office a virtual pariah, maligned and hated like no other American in his lifetime. And then, astonishingly, like a phoenix, he slowly rose from the ashes of his political immolation. Now came the final phase of Hoover's career, his remarkable ex-presidency. 
For the next 31 and one-half years, in fair political weather and foul, the former president became a crusader, a tireless and very visible castigator of the dominant political trends of his day. In the New Deal of his successor, Franklin Roosevelt, Hoover perceived not a moderate and pragmatic response to economic distress, but something more sinister, a revolutionary transformation in America's political economy and constitutional order. Having espied the unpalatable future, he could not bring himself to acquiesce in silence. It is this eventful period in Hoover's career, and more specifically, his life as a political pugilist from 1933 to 1955, that is the main subject of the volume that has been distributed to you earlier today. The Crusade Years, the, the title of the book, is a previously unknown memoir that Hoover composed and revised during the 1940s and 1950s. Placed in storage after his death, the manuscript lay sequestered, its existence unsuspected by scholars, until 2009, when it was discovered among the files of another hitherto inaccessible Hoover manuscript being readied for posthumous publication. This other tome, known informally as the magnum opus, it's huge, addressed American foreign policy in the 1930s and 40s. Part memoir, part diplomatic history, part polemic, it was a scathing indictment of what Hoover termed Franklin Roosevelt's lost statesmanship during World War II. Hoover ultimately titled the book Freedom Betrayed, and as John has mentioned, it was published in 2011 by the Hoover Institution Press. The Crusade Years is a companion volume of sorts to the magnum opus and covers much the same period. It recounts Hoover's family life as a former president, his myriad philanthropic interests, and most of all, what he called his crusade against collectivism on the American home front during the New Deal era and its aftermath. To appreciate the Crusade years as a historical document, we need to understand the contours of Hoover's ex-presidency. In March 1933, Hoover and his wife Lou returned here to California and to the magnificent home that they had built after World War I on the campus of Stanford. Years earlier, as a young mining engineer toiling in Australia, Hoover had written wistfully, Stanford is the best place in the world. So it seemed in the summer of 1933. In his first speech after leaving the White House, he told friends, I get up fairly early and take a look from the Palo Alto place into Santa Clara Valley. It's very pleasant. Then I have breakfast and a walk. Then I get my mail and look over the newspapers. Then I take another long look at the valley, thanking Providence I'm in California. <laughs> then I sit down and think things over and spend the rest of the day laughing and laughing and laughing. 
Nevertheless, there was little that Hoover found amusing in the news streaming out of the nation's capital. At the climax of the bitter presidential election campaign in 1932, he had portrayed the decision facing the American electorate as more than a choice between two men and two parties. It was, he said, a contest between two philosophies of government, an election that would determine the nation's course, in his words, for over a century to come. The proposed New Deal, he had warned, was nothing less than a form of collectivism that would destroy the very foundations of the American way of life. Everything that had happened since had reinforced this conviction. In September 1933, he told a friend that the impending battle in this country would be between, Hoover's words, a properly regulated individualism and sheer socialism. He had no doubt as to which direction the New Deal was taking. Although Hoover had once described his own social philosophy as American individualism, and actually wrote a little book with that title in 1922-23, increasingly now in the 30s, he used another word to describe his philosophy, and that word was liberalism. He contended that the progress of American civilization had come from its fidelity to what he called true or historic liberalism. For him, the fundamentals of historic liberalism were embodied in the Constitution and above all in the Bill of Rights. The discouraging thing, he lamented privately, is that for some fancied economic boom, the American people are prepared to sacrifice their most fundamental possession. Everywhere, it seemed to him, the noxious forces of statism were recrudescent. Hoover now responded, as he would respond so often to adversity in the years ahead, by firmly putting his pencil to paper. By early 1934, he was hard at work on a book that would confront the ascendant statist ideologies on the terrain of philosophy and principle. In September 1934, his book appeared under the title, The Challenge to Liberty. According to Hoover, the American system of liberty, a system infused by the philosophy of historic liberalism, was under fundamental assault. Where liberalism had championed the individual as master of the state and possessor of inalienable rights, alternative philosophies were now boldly advocating, in Hoover's words, the idea of the servitude of the individual to the state. Among these rival philosophies, all sharing this fundamental premise, according to Hoover, were Nazism, fascism, socialism, communism, and regimentation, his term for Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. Collectivism in all its forms, Hoover prophesied, would lead inevitably to what he called bureaucratic tyranny. The challenge to liberty was Hoover's first major public statement after he left public office. 
in the White House. Within days, the book was a national bestseller. In its pages, Hoover had tried to position himself as a man of the progressive center, an advocate of what he called real liberalism as opposed to its enemies, reaction and radicalism. But as the former president now realized with trepidation, the middle ground he tried to occupy was not holding. The country was veering sharply to the left. In 1937, he declared, the New Deal, having corrupted the label of liberalism for collectivism, coercion, and concentration of political power, it seems historic liberalism must be conservatism in contrast. With these words of recognition, his political odyssey was complete. Hoover, a one-time bull moose progressive Republican who supported Teddy Roosevelt in 1912, then worked for Woodrow Wilson, and then was seen by conservative Republicans in the, in the 1920s as a man a little bit unsafe, not, not as safe as Coolidge. Hoover, with all of that background, in the face of the challenge from the New Deal, had become a man of the right. The publication of the Challenge to Liberty marked Hoover's emergence from a year and a half of political exile. More importantly, it announced his post-presidential debut as an ideological warrior and crusader prophet, a role he did not relinquish until his death. Crisscrossing the country in the mid and late 1930s, he delivered an unceasing barrage of verbal fusillades against the New Deal and its defenders. In the process, he became the Republican Party's intellectual leader and President Roosevelt's most formidable critic from the right. Although Hoover himself never publicly admitted it, not even in his memoirs, from 1934 on, if not sooner, he began to hanker for a return to the White House. Particularly during late 1939 and 1940, he covertly maneuvered to orchestrate a spontaneous draft of himself as the presidential nominee of what he expected would be a deadlocked Republican National Convention. He hoped by a powerful speech to the convention delegates to establish himself as the party's giant among pygmies and to stampede the excited delegates into nominating him. His best laid plans were upended by the rise of a man named Wendell Wilkie and by some suspicious happenings at the convention involving the microphone, as readers of the Crusaders will discover. Denied another chance for vindication at the polls, Hoover decided to uproot himself from California and made New York City, the nation's intellectual and communications capital, his principal residence. In December 1940, he and his wife moved into a suite in the Waldorf Towers of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. For the rest of his life, it would be his base of operations in his tireless pursuit of influence on the nation's destiny. Hoover's fight to save America from the curse of collectivism forms the centerpiece of the Crusaders' volume. But the book that you have is not exclusively about politics. 
Part of the value of the Crusade years is that it enhances our awareness of the remarkable breadth of Hoover's non-political accomplishments during his post-presidential decades. There were, for instance, what he called his Crusades for Benevolent Institutions, including the Boys Clubs of America, whose board of directors he actively chaired for nearly 30 years, and the Hoover Institution, which in 1959 he described as probably my major contribution to American life. To the end of his days, Hoover lived abundantly. Now, one might suppose that the hyperactive ex-president would have had little time or inclination to write a set of memoirs, but he did. And his crusade volume, it turns out, was only a fraction of it. In fact, the crusade years was but a single component in an elaborate literary project that he undertook in 1940 after his disappointment at the Republican National Convention. That summer, as he turned 66, he began to write a series of memoirs that would grow to comprise six substantial volumes. Between 1940 and 44, he wrote and revised what became the first three. By the autumn of 1944, he was ready to take up the story of his post-presidential life and his battle against the foreign and domestic policies of Franklin Roosevelt. In September, Hoover scribbled out the first passages of what was, in effect, the fourth volume of his projected memoirs. Its principal subject was to be his crusade against what he called the creeping collectivism of the New Deal. That same autumn, he composed the first chapters of a massive parallel volume devoted to World War II. This was the genesis of what came to be known to his intimates as the, as the magnum opus. And yes, I did say this right, he was busy writing more than one volume at once. Although Hoover employed a team of loyal secretaries and for seven years a very able part-time research uh, assistant, the economist Arthur Kemp, his evolving memoirs were very much his own creation. Every word of his original manuscripts, it appears, he himself composed by hand. And he revised them time and time again. In 1951 and 52, he published the first three volumes of his memoirs, covering his life through his presidency. Meanwhile, he continued to tinker with and revise the other projected segments. At this point, it would be easy to think that since moving to the Waldorf Astoria, Hoover had become a virtual hermit, doing little else but write and rewrite his memoirs. Such an inference, though plausible, would be wrong. He remained very much a public man. In 1946, for instance, at President Truman's invitation, he conducted a survey of post-war food and famine conditions on five continents. He visited 38 countries and traveled more than 50,000 miles. In 1947, Truman invited him to chair the newly created Commission on Organization of the Executive Branch of the Government. It speedily became known to the public as the Hoover Commission, so dominant was he in its proceedings. For the next 
year and a half, he directed its deliberations at a pace that would have exhausted men half his age, even while suffering from a protracted case of shingles. In 1953 came another summons to public service. That summer, Congress voted to create a second commission on organization of the executive branch of the government, and President Eisenhower invited Hoover to chair it. For the aging foe of nearly all things Rooseveltian, it was an opportunity for vindication on a new and heroic scale a chance to devise and promote an agenda to curtail the federal bureaucracy, stop the growth of creeping socialism, and crown his 20-year crusade against collectivism with success. For the next two years, he immersed himself in the duties of what friend and foe alike called the Second Hoover Commission. In the midst of these labors, he turned 80 years old. When the second Hoover Commission completed its work in 1955, its indefatigable chairman turned back to his private affairs and a nagging question. What should he do about the remaining unpublished portions of his gargantuan memoirs? In the summer and autumn of 1955, Hoover again revised the Crusade Years manuscript. And then, at the end of the year, he put it aside and never worked on it again. What happened? Although the record is not completely explicit, it seems that another literary venture had begun to take priority in his mind, a project to which he initially gave the title The Crusade Against Famine. It grew into a multi-volume history of American enterprises in compassion, as he called them, that had saved literally millions of lives from famine and disease during and after World War II, and World War I as well. He eventually gave this series, it was originally supposed to be one book, but he turned it into a series. He gave it the title, An American Epic, and perhaps some of you have it in your libraries. Along the way, this is the late 50s now, he stopped and had a new idea, a kind of an impulsive move. He decided to turn out another book called The Ordeal of Woodrow Wilson, about Woodrow Wilson's travails at the Versailles Peace Conference when Hoover was one of his principal advisors and associates. That spin-off book, The Ordeal of Woodrow Wilson, proved to be one of his most admired publications. In August 1959, Hoover celebrated his 85th birthday. Rising daily around 5.30 in the morning, he was at his desk by 6.00. By now, his secretaries were keeping statistics about his lifestyle. <laughs> During the next 12 months, they later reported, he delivered five major speeches, attended 35 public functions, answered 21,195 letters, and traveled more than 14,000 miles. And still, despite growing health problems, he pushed on. Between 1959 and 1964, Hoover published seven more books, an American epic in four volumes, a collection of his letters to children, a book called Fishing for Fun and to Wash Your Soul, 
fly fishing being one of his great avocations, and another installment of his collected addresses upon the American road. It was an astounding feat. Seven books published between the ages of 85 and 90. But not yet the Crusaders, nor the foreign policy manuscript that now mattered to him most, the magnum opus to which in 1962 he affixed its final title, Freedom Betrayed. He wanted it to stand at the, as the unshakable indictment before the bar of history of the feckless foreign policy of Franklin Roosevelt. With the Crusaders' manuscript now indefinitely in limbo, Hoover strained every nerve in his final years to revise and perfect Freedom Betrayed. In September 1963, he told a friend that it was essentially finished. But before he could publish it, Hoover died at the Waldorf in 1964. Under the terms of his will, ownership of his personal papers and books was bequeathed to a family foundation. Evidently concerned that release of the magnum opus soon after Hoover's death might reopen old political wounds and ignite unseemly controversies, the foundation did not proceed to publication. Instead, it placed the magnum opus and related papers in storage at the Hoover Institution, where they remained out of public view for many years. These files, incidentally, are now open for researchers. Perhaps without realizing it, Hoover's heirs included among the transferred documents Hoover's other opus, the Crusaders, which had lain dormant since 1955. There, buried as it were among the files for the magnum opus, the crusade manuscript remained for more than 40 years. In 2009, the Herbert Hoover Foundation, chaired at the time, I believe, by Paul Davies, authorized the editing of Freedom Betrayed for publication. And the Hoover Institution and John Razian invited me to undertake the task of editing it. One of the catalysts for the decision to publish was Herbert Hoover's grandson, Herbert III, known to his friends, and I believe to many of you, as Pete Hoover. As an overseer of the Hoover Institution, Pete had become aware of the magnum opus and concluded that enough time had passed and the time had come to make this manuscript available to, to the world of scholars. While editing the magnum opus, manuscript and conducting research in the pertinent files at the Hoover Institution, I discovered the drafts of the Crusade book and its offshoots. With the permission again of the Herbert Hoover Foundation and the Hoover Institution, this long forgotten manuscript, which I did not realize in advance even existed, the Crusade years, was published a little over a year ago. What, in conclusion, do we learn from its pages? I think Mr. Hoover would be disappointed if we were to read the Crusaders solely for its anecdotes and insights into his career. Although his book has the flavor of an apologia, plainly he intended it to be more. His chosen title provides the critical clue. Crusade, how he savored this word, as he scribbled away at his desk in the early 1950s. 
the stirring persona of a crusader with its connotations of dynamism and idealism was his cherished self-image at a time when many of his enemies had dismissed him as a curmudgeon whom Roosevelt and history had supposedly passed by. Undaunted, Hoover fought on as a man with a mission, seeking not just the recovery of his reputation, but the intellectual and spiritual rescue of a nation that he perceived to have gone astray. In the 1930s and 40s, both Hoover and his arch-rival Roosevelt knew that they were engaged in a contest for the American mind and political soul. What had gone wrong in America since the crash of 1929? Was the Great Depression a crisis of capitalism, a product of Hoover's mismanagement, or a catastrophe brought on by uncontrollable happenings abroad? Was the New Deal a humane and uplifting reform movement that saved capitalism, or a muddled and meddlesome experiment in collectivism? Did the traditional American system of limited government, private enterprise, and voluntarism extolled by Hoover discredit itself forever during his presidency? Or did his successor launch America on an unnecessary and dangerous spiral toward socialism? As Hoover foresaw in 1932, the answers to these questions would determine the nation's course for perhaps a century to come. Unlike most men in politics then or since, he realized the supreme importance of constructing a compelling narrative of recent American history as a weapon in the ongoing clash of political philosophies. The Crusaders was Hoover's effort to create such a narrative. Unless Americans correctly understood their history, he feared, the future would belong to the advocates of statism. Reading the Crusaders, one is struck by how resonant Hoover's arguments continue to be. As an unapologetic believer in American exceptionalism, he resisted what he saw as the insidious Europeanization and collectivization of American society. Today, one could easily take passages from the crusade years and convert them into op-ed pieces. So current are the problems of political and economic philosophy that he addressed. Herbert Hoover was never easy to pigeonhole. It has been said of him that when he was in office, he was too progressive for the conservatives and too conservative for the radicals. But in the larger sweep of the 20th century, Hoover, the unflagging anti-New Dealer, contributed mightily to the critique of ever-aggrandizing statism, a critique that has become integral to American conservatism. He kept anti-statism alive as an intellectual and political force. It was among the most enduring of his legacies. Just a few weeks before he died, a young friend visited Hoover in the Waldorf Astoria. Hoover, who had recently turned 90, was now frail and confined to a wheelchair, 
but his mind and formidable will were unbound. As he and his guest drank tea together, he suddenly asked her, tell me, child, what do you really want in life? After pausing for a moment, the young woman replied that she liked her life just as it was and wanted it to go on without change. I have a nice husband. I have a nice apartment. So the answer is, I want a status quo. Hoover looked on his young visitor with horror. <laughs> How can you say a thing like that, he exclaimed. Because I want more. I want to write a better book. I want to have more friends. I just want more. And I think you should never sit back and say, I want a status quo. Throughout his arduous ex-presidency, Hoover refused to settle for the status quo. In his memoirs, he attempted to tell why. A few weeks after his conversation with his visitor, his race against mortality came to an end, and he never got to write the better book of which he still dreamed. But during his life, he published more than 30 books, and he left behind two more. By any standard, it was an impressive accomplishment. The Crusaders, then, is the missing link in Hoover's memoirs. The final brick in a literary edifice that he began to build nearly 75 years ago. In its pages, we learn the story of his later life, of his abiding political philosophy, and of his crusade to preserve the land of liberty that had given him opportunity for service. It is a remarkable saga told in his own words, his way. Thank you. George, I have to tell you, um, as you know, uh, I am uh, in my last year as director of Hoover, and uh, in so many ways I think that uh, there have been three prominent people, well, th two prominent people and myself uh, that have had the, uh, uh, the good fortune of uh, managing and, um, and leading the Hoover Institution since Mr. Hoover uh, uh, was the man. And, uh, and so you've treated me tremendously with that talk uh, thank you in much. my now 26th year as director. And I want to thank you very much. Thank you. In light of the uh, timing and with, question, uh, with uh, dinner ready to go, uh, we're going to suspend questions, but I want to, from the deepest part of my heart, thank you for this wonderful Thank you. Happy to have another. Thank you so much. Those are wonderful words. Thank you.